Welcome to another episode of the Propane Fitness Podcast. We have a guest with us again today. And our guest is called James Fell from Body for Wife. James, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys today? Yeah, we're good. Pretty good, yeah. We've got a, a long afternoon of recording, so um, I'm quite sweaty. I don't know about, <laughs> don't know about Johnny. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm the right temperature. Um, how many so- calories does podcasting burn? probably more than regular sitting i think mm. um there's a lot of brain activity it's quite to go on. it's quite intense really or you're always on your toes probably about 50 percent of your daily cal- caloric burn is via your brain so if you're challenging it you would stands to reason that it would it would help burn off a couple of cookies mm. we should maybe experiment with the podcast diet where we just podcast <laughs> 12 hours a day See if we get leaner. See what happens to BMR. (laughs) You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. So James, do you want to just give us a brief introduction? Tell us what you're about, what Body for Wife is about, and let us know more about you. Okay, so uh, yeah, name's James Fell, website, bodyforwife.com. It's also the, the handle for Twitter and Facebook is slash bodyforwife. Uh, I'm a, primarily a fitness writer. I do some consulting with clients, but mostly I write columns for Chicago Tribune, LA Times, Ask Men. Um, I blog a lot on my site as well, and I've, I've written for a num- number of other places like uh, the Guardian, which I would imagine you guys are familiar with. Yeah, we are. Men's health, women's health, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a book published by Random House a few years ago, and I'm working on my next book right now. Bloody hell. So you, you okay, so you, you're a bit of a prolific writer then. Um, and we had, a, we had a look at your website earlier on, and uh, the, the initial tagline is, I love my wife, I hate fad diets. And I think that's uh, <laughs> it's quite a nice, um, succinct way to put it. What's the story behind the name of uh, Body for Wife? So it, it's a play on words because I came up with the idea, geez, about 15 years ago when Body for Life was a mega best selling weight loss program. And I had a bunch of friends who were doing this program, which involved, it was really hyping up a lot of metabolism uh, ideas that had have since been debunked, mostly by me. And, uh, and it was big on selling supplements and, you know, the six small meals a day and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, these friends of mine, they were all on the body for body for life program, popping all the supplements. And the thing was that I was in better shape than these guys. And uh, one day they said, you know, what's your secret? And I just jokingly said, I'm on the body for wife program because, uh, and they all laughed. They thought it was funny and said, oh, you should write a book called that. And and so that I I ended up buying the URL that day. And it was, it was kind of a joke, but kind of true because I had to, you know, I was a former fat guy going back 27 years ago that I decided before I proposed to my girlfriend that I would get in shape because it just, it seemed like a good idea. It was a good impetus to change was that, you know, before I hand over this sparkly rock and ask her to put up with me forevermore, that, that maybe I should try getting in shape first. So I got in shape and then I proposed. She would have said yes anyway. She wasn't like shallow like that or anything. <laughs> but, you know, I do take uh, 
a small bit of motivation that, you know, I like to look good for my wife. So that's, that's where it came from. That's really cool. And it's funny how um, some of the best names are often just come up with sort of back, back, back of a napkin or just as a joke initially, um, propane fitness, very much the same thing. Uh, Johnny suggested it as a joke and then we were all like, oh, hang on a minute. That's, uh, that's not bad. <laughs> a ring to it. It's interesting that I think probably one of the main reasons, at least for, for men, and probably the main reason for me getting into fitness was to become more attractive to the opposite sex. I think it probably starts out like that to begin with. And I was also quite chubby and overweight at school and that resulted in, in bullying, etc. So I think you kind of see the, you see fitness as like the way out and a way onto the other side of the equation when, when it comes to being how people perceive you. So I suppose body for wife is, is in some, in some ways has probably deeper meanings for a lot of people in terms of touching on their own fitness pursuits. I suppose that... A good initial spark that sort of, you know, desire to um, look better for the opposite sex or the same sex, whichever, uh, whichever you prefer. But it's beyond an initial spark. I don't think it really has any long term staying power. I think the only reason anybody really sticks with fitness long term is because they fall in love with it them, themselves that, mm. the, you know, they're doing it for themselves. And, and for me, it was like, I, I said, it, it remains a small bit of motivation that, you know, I kind of like that, like it when my wife checks me out, even though we've been together almost 30 years now, but it's, it's really the, the thing that's getting me to the the gym and, and getting me to go for runs and bike rides. It's just because I really like doing it. Yeah. So that's something that I guess only transpires once you've seen behind the curtain. And it's something that we, yeah, we've definitely talked about where the initial uh, drive of, of getting in shape is, is really all about sex. And I think the fitness industry is a little bit um, coy about admitting that. But if you look at any of the kind of supposedly fitness Instagram profiles, they're all pretty much pornographic and it's it's very much um directed towards that but once you peel back a layer and you you get into it <clears throat> you realize that it's very much more about um spiritual growth i suppose so uh it's interesting that there's the the two sides of that yeah and i i totally agree and i wrote a, a blog post that was called way beyond weight loss and it it actually linked a whole bunch of columns that i'd written for like the la times and chicago tribune and other places that were specifically detailed uh, about the, the benefits of physical activity that had nothing to do with weight loss. There was things like stress reduction, creativity enhancement, um, career enhancement, uh, battling diabetes, recovery from cancer, um, there was, oh, uh, keeping your brain healthy. Like there's so many benefits that it, it seems cliche to say exercise is medicine, but it, it really is that, that having living a fit, uh, physically active lifestyle, uh, changes you from top to toenails and that, that we're not meant to just kind of sit idly by and watch the earth spin on our axis. We need to get up and join the fray. I suppose it's almost a shame that benefits like that end up becoming uh, almost like a like a confirmation that people look for when they're already doing the behaviors that lead to those outcomes rather than the motivation for a lot of people to get into this stuff. I know certainly going back to when my fitness journey began, if someone told me that it would improve my creativity or, or battle long-term disease risk, 
they're, they're kind of nice, but they're not, it's probably not enough to get you over that initial hump. Would you agree? Well, yeah. And the before and after photos are still alive and well. And I mean, I've got them on my own website, but you going back to the whole body for life thing that I talked about before that really popular book. Uh, one of the things that helped it sell so well was that it was full of amazing before and after transformations. And I don't necessarily think that there's anything specifically wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with the desire to change the way you look. I think that it can send you off the rails if you obsess over it. But I still get some of my motivation based on how I look. Uh, it's, you know, I'm 48 years old, and uh, I like the fact that that you know I can got a bit of ab definition and some muscles, and I. I, I I like that, that, you know, I'm pleased with what I see in the mirror and, and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with taking some motivation from that. That being said, you don't have to care that, that you know, anyone can, can be happy with the way that they look or, or anyone can be sexy on their own terms. And if people just want to be physically active for the sake of the way it makes them feel and not give a single shit about the, the way they look, that is perfectly acceptable, and I support it completely. Apparently, Jillian Michaels, um, so this is the, the coach from The Biggest Loser, um, was yeah. threatening to sue you. Can you uh, tell us a bit about the story behind that? That was that was a while back. Um, I'd been, just started writing for the Los Angeles Times, and uh, Jillian Michaels is the, ex the perfect example of style over substance that... The uh, I, I interviewed the guy Harley Pasternak, who had originally been chosen to uh, to be on that show, and he ended up saying no, like be one of the trainers on the show. And he was actually quite qualified; he has a master's degree in exercise physiology. And uh, and he looked at the format, the way that they were running the show, and he said, "I can't be a part of this. This is not." A healthy way for you know this is not the way that I would do it and the last straw for him was when they hired Jillian Michaels to be um, to be opposite him he referred to her as an actress not a trainer oh, because she had, she had some really low uh, you know bottom of the barrel kind of training certification the ones that you can get in a weekend by you know doing some simple multiple choice and uh, and her whole approach was just, you know, yell and swear at people. And, and she didn't really know what she was doing. So I wrote an article for the LA Times that was focused on her new kettlebell DVD. And I had some, some very experienced, qualified kettlebell trainers look at, the, look at her kettlebell technique. And they all said that she was horrible. And she also made some very outlandish weight loss claims on the cover of the DVD as well. So I referred to her as a uh, an actress playing the role of a trainer on TV, and she freaked. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, she wasn't wasn't a huge fan of that. I've not. Yeah. I've seen clips of The Biggest Loser, and the, the the only thing I remember was it may have been her, it may have been one of the other trainers, but they were coaching someone to do a deadlift with one of these fixed barbells, and they were like, right now, bend at the waist. You're thinking, bend at the waist. Okay, that's that's the cue you're going to give your uh, your clients. Yeah, it's they they really are not very qualified 
at all. I mean, they've had some more qualified people later on, but the reality is that what they're making these people do is, uh, and that was actually one of the pieces I wrote for the guardian that was published last year was, um, was about the show, the biggest loser where I just ripped it to shreds. And I've been a, a big critic of, of that show for a long time. And I think that any trainer that has anything to do with that show is morally bankrupt. Mm-hmm. The, the, the fact that they would put people through this unsafe torture session. I interviewed one physician who said, I'm amazed no one's died yet on this show. And so am I that, that it's, I, I think that, that any trainer that has anything to do with that show really needs to reevaluate their life and their decisions because I, I can't criticize it enough. And so when, when I made these comments about Jillian Michaels, um, she was confronted at some event by us magazine and she freaked out and said she was going to sue. And then the fact that she said she was going to sue made international news. They they were writing about it in Ethiopian press. (laughs) (laughs) My uncle emailed me from Hong Kong saying, what's this about you and Jillian and Michaels? And, uh, and so that, that was kind of fun. That was, that was exciting. But there was, she never filed any lawsuit because there wasn't anything I said that was untrue. Everything I said was true. And it actually um, ended up kind of blowing up in her face. It really put a lot of, uh, put her under the microscope. And, uh, and I ended up coming out looking fine. And she ended up looking even worse because she, she should have just let it slide. But instead, she freaked out. And, uh, and it just made her look bad. And a year later, the statute of limitations expired. No, no lawsuit was ever filed, and it was all sort of kind of water under the bridge. And I was worried because I was brand new at the LA Times that my editor was going to be upset with me. And, and she was like, oh, no, this is great. You're not a real journalist until someone threatens to sue you. It means you're doing your job. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a, there's a quite a famous clip, or that, at least there was a while ago, did, it, did the rounds on social media and YouTube of a, I think the lady was called Joelle. Oh, yeah. Where she was being made by one of the trainers. I don't know his name. It was a guy. Um, He was making a run on a treadmill over and over again and shouting at her until she was in tears, until she eventually completed, like, this 30-second interval. And was making everybody do it again and everybody do it again. He was (laughs) swearing at her, shouting at her. You kind of watch it and think, like, is this... Is this meant to be encouraging her or is she... Like, is this just torture? And that... Similar to what you were what, saying. What Sorry. you just described is describing almost every episode of every season. Like, that's the way <laughs> they operate. Make them run endlessly on treadmills while swearing at them and calling them fat and useless. And, uh, and this is not a healthy mindset. And it's not a healthy approach or a sustainable approach to weight loss. I can't hate that show enough. Sounds more <laughs> like just... a special forces selection than, than it does like a, a weight loss program, to be honest. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's entertaining, but not not for the right reasons. Definitely. Um, well, na- narrow uh, narrow escape for her, I suppose, because I-, I can't imagine the had it gone to court, it would have turned out that well for her. But um, funny story nonetheless. So you've got a book on your website called Lose It Right. Yes. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, the the content behind it, and um, why you wrote it? Well, so when I. I decided to write the book was I co-authored it with a woman who has her PhD in the psychology of eating behavior. She was the science brain behind it and I did all the writing and it's, uh, 
it is an eating behavior focused book rather than a specific diet program. And I, I have an MBA, so my my brain is very big picture strategic focused. So it's for the reader to find a way to meet the writer halfway because we offer a lot of advice in terms of, okay, here is a general uh, direction that you need to go in, but you need to find the path that best suits you. Cookie cutter diet plans and cookie cutter exercise plans really don't work. So, it, because it, it doesn't take in the individual likes and dislikes and, and lives of people. So we, we put them through a bit of a questionnaire to try and help them figure out what's the best plan for them. And it's, there is a lot of science geekery in there in terms of, um, in terms of why we like to eat what we, we do, as well as there's a lot of information about integrating physical activity and the benefits of exercise in terms of learning to control eating behavior. And, uh, and like I said, it, it's much more strategic plan oriented rather than cookie cutter diet and exercise solution. So I think that really, um, takes us on to the, the psychology of things as well as just, um, the specific implementation. And I realized that you can be hired as a lifestyle consultant as well. So what's the difference between that and your nutritional coaching? Well, I don't do detailed nutritional coaching. I would always refer out to a registered dietitian for that because I'm not a registered dietitian. When I coach people, it is big picture lifestyle stuff. And actually, it seems that the majority of clients that I have have already read my book and they want some additional assistance. It's like they read the book and they, they liked it and it's working for them, but they want more details specific to them. So basically, we talk on the phone or via Skype uh, and then I, I, you know, we talk about their lives and their struggles and their families and their job and what they like to do and then I put together um, varying degrees of specificity like the, it's people that are looking for more details beyond uh, what they can find in the book so that I specifically talk them through it and we, we figure out plans for them. And I think in a lot of cases, what they're looking for is accountability. Like I've got a client right now who I think he knows most of what I'm telling him to do already if he thought about it, but he wanted somebody that he could pay money to say, you have to do this because that's what making him say, okay, I'll do it. Sure. <laughs> so the, the accountability side of it as well. Yeah, and some people want me to. Um, it, it really depends. Like I, I work with people based on how it is that they want me to work with them. Sometimes they want details. Sometimes they they just want you know kind of a shoulder to cry on. Other times they want to be yelled at. Like I, I had one client that said, "I I need you to be disappointed in me if I don't do this," and I said. Okay, <laughs> so now, you know, we're going to check back in two weeks and you're going to tell me that you did all this stuff. And if you didn't, then I'm going to yell at you. And that worked for him. That was what he wanted. <laughs> so. The thing is, it's quite helpful when a client has that level of self-awareness, knowing what kind of coach or good cop, bad cop that you need to be, because then you can direct your, your coaching approach to them 
uh, otherwise you you feel like you're trying to trying to guess it and you risk just upsetting someone and not not really helping so um yeah sometimes if they lay it out for you clearly it can help you uh, coach them better and that's one of the things that you know we we talk about in our initial discussions is you know what do you think is gonna gonna help and that doesn't mean that they direct at all but but we we try to figure out okay how can we work together that's going to be most beneficial for you yeah, I think with coaches, you sometimes you're looking for someone to inform you and to to give you the plan. Sometimes it's accountability. Sometimes it's objectivity. Um, I think it's interesting, James. You were saying that a lot of your clients that work with you have already read your book. I think that sort of shines a light on the what it takes to really make a change in 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 your life, at least for most people. And that is that the information, for the most part, at least at the moment, with the way that with how populated the information is becoming with information. Um, is you, you need accountability and objectivity and implementation of the information to your life, which is ultimately, it sounds like that's what you're providing really for those people. You're providing a way of them keeping on track and keeping keeping a system and a process that's sustainable yeah. with, within their life. There definitely is a lot of cheerleading going on, but at the same time, it, it's hard for people who, they can, I tried to make the book as comprehensive as I possibly could. That, that so that someone could read it and have all the information that they would need. But if someone's new to this stuff, that they've, they've, they've heard all the bullshit information. Like I spent, I had 20 years of experience going into it before I even wrote that book, uh, before I even started to write the book. And so it was, even, even though I think that the content is very clear, if you've, Got, you don't have that that basic experience even though the book is clear it can still be hard to process and implement it so it's like okay I read it and I understood it but I don't I don't have this this base of knowledge to I still need that that person to kind of walk me through it so that that's a lot of what often ends up happening is it's walking people through it and I actually have this one client right now that it's kind of funny I, I'm not even sure how he became my client because he says, I really don't like to read. <laughs> like, you know, most people find me because they like reading what it is that I wrote. But, uh, so he, the way that we work is we talk on the phone and then I recap and I give him like short little bullet points of do this, do this, do this. And, uh, and so that, that one was kind of a unique one was that he was the first client I had that said that he didn't come to me because he liked my writing. He just, he found me by accident. And he said, well, you seem like you weren't full of shit. So I figured that you would. <laughs> well, that's it. You know, some, sometimes you, you haven't got, you, you have a goal, but you don't have the time or the mental space to dedicate towards reading, reading about it and deriving how to do it from first principles and getting a, a coach to just take you through is, uh, is what's needed for some people. I think that's a, uh, Certainly very helpful. James, I wanted yeah, to ask you. Was, this guy is really busy. He's a, he's a physician and he's got, uh, you know, a very demanding job and a family. It's actually, it's, I, I am quite flattered that it seems like I've had a lot of physicians for clients. So that, that's a me patting myself on the back. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with the fact that so many doctors seek me out for consulting. Yeah, that's a, that's a good sign that, uh, you're not spouting, uh, nonsense physiology like like some of the the guru characters um like Jim Michaels 
Well, <laughs> no, no comment. So, uh, so James, we wanted to ask you a little bit just to finish up um, about feminism, just because this was something that I think um, it's it's unusual uh, to see a fitness writer um, talk about this stuff. And uh, I saw you you posted today about um, fending off rape with uh, yeah. with training. Um, can you discuss a little bit about um, your thoughts on feminism and and toxic masculinity, as you call it? Well, the way the, the the reason why I got into it was because I've been doing a lot of writing for Ask Men, uh, which is you know targeted at young men, and I, I kept seeing this mentality in fitness that you know these these young gym bros that that had this idea of about being an alpha male and uh and it, it's just through, there's a lot of this sort of toxic masculinity mindset in fitness that you, you got to be a tough guy and and get all the bitches and and it just it as an older married guy that you know maybe i had some of these stupid ideas myself when i was younger that but now i've got some age and wisdom i'm just like you know what this shit is just not cool and so I wrote, um, there was the, the first instance was there was, there was a mass shooting in California by a guy named, um, Elliot Roger that was really prompted by his, the way this whole pickup artistry alpha male thing had, had failed him. And, uh, and I mean, the guy was, was not well, but it was, uh, it, a lot of what he talked about in his in his video before he went on the shooting spree was the whole desire to be an alpha male and this toxic mindset that he had. So I decided to write. I'd been really annoyed with this whole concept of the alpha alpha male for for a long time. So I wrote a piece called "The Myth of the Alpha Male," and it really blew up. And then Time Magazine got in touch with me and said, "We'd like you to write about this," you know. Uh, toxic masculinity and men's rights movement and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, and I said, sure. So I, I did that. And, and, you know, I'd always been um, in favor of feminism and equality. And, and I, I just felt that, that this was, this was stuff that needed to be said because these guys were getting a lot of this sort of toxic bro attitude of, being a tough guy and, and, you know, treating women like conquests and, uh, and, you know, this whole pickup artistry, having game kind of stuff that, that I, I really did not agree with and, and thought was, was not, not a healthy mindset and, and certainly not, not a nice way to, not a nice person to be or a nice way to live. So I started just doing a little bit of writing about it here and there. And I mean, I didn't study like gender studies or anything like that. I'm not writing these pieces for women. I'm writing them for guys saying, this is how to not be a douchebag. And as it turned out, the, the pieces were very well received. And, uh, and so every once in a while, I just, when something strikes me as important and needing to be said, I will say it. And as an example, yesterday, there was a story about a woman in Seattle who was training for a marathon and she stopped for a bathroom break and was attacked in the bathroom and she fought like a lion. She beat the shit out of this guy 
and uh, and had this it was this brutal battle with this guy in the bathroom that was trying to rape her. And then a, a bystander came by and they locked him in the bathroom stall using a carabiner until the police could arrive. And I'm thinking, that's great. That's so awesome that she was able to do that. But at the same time, I was worried about the message that would get out that people would say that, that you know, if you don't fight back against your rapist, then why didn't you? It's this whole victim blaming mentality that sometimes it's not safe to fight back. And sometimes people just mentally can't. Like it's it's not all fight or flight. Sometimes people just become so terrified that they freeze. So I wanted to explain the problem of this whole, that approximately 80% of rape prevention messaging is targeted at women saying, this is what you need to do to not be raped. And I'm thinking, that's a horrible friggin' message to send out that, the blame for rape is on the people who commit it. So that was, that was what it was about was that targeting this message towards men saying, don't rape people, which doesn't mean that people can't take precautions to be safe. But the analogy that I used was that if I'm out for a run and some guy blows through a stop sign in a car and hits me, People aren't going to say, well, why weren't you watching for him to go through that stop sign? They're not going to blame me yeah. for getting And yet that's what happens in the case of sexual assault. They say, what, how much did you have to drink? What were you wearing? Why were you with this person? All this kind of stuff. They, they blame the victim. And But at the same time, that doesn't mean that even though I'm, I'm out for a run, I'm not necessarily always expecting that that guy's going to stop for the stop sign. I try to stay safe. I'm not saying don't try to stay safe, but I'm saying don't blame the victim. Blame the perpetrator and teach people to not perpetrate these crimes. I think that's fair enough. You've got to get the whole of society, the perpetrate, the potential perpetrators and the victims to marshal their resources to uh, prevent it. And I can certainly um, resonate with, I, I mean, I've, I've not been raped, but I've, I've been sexually assaulted, um, a couple of years ago. And the, the rabbit in the headlights, is that what you said? Um, sense definitely kicks You're in. <laughs> Sorry, what's that? But yeah, rabbits too, I guess. What, say that again. Uh, deer, deer in the headlights was the expression deer, I used. <laughs> yeah. Deer in the headlights for sure. And, uh, cause you, you just don't expect it. You think I'm, I, I'm a young guy. I don't, I, it's, it's not, first on your list of potential threats. So you don't really know how to react. Um, so I think having some kind of uh, second second nature response to those kind of things is certainly helpful to defend yourself. I think it's one, it's one of those situations, isn't it, where people talk all the time about what you should do if you get burgled or attacked or someone starts a fight with you and there's, all, there's kind of the theory behind it, but when it comes down to it, it will, because it's such a... Um, an instinctive reaction that you'll you'll eventually have, and there's so so many emotions going around at the time that you'll just it, it react as you react at the time. Um, and I suppose it's, you can't feel like it's it's a perfectly natural reaction to just freeze up and do nothing, mm. and yet people feel they get blamed for not doing anything, and they feel terrible about the fact like why didn't I fight back? And the reason why is because that's a very natural reaction. I mean, that, that sometimes you fight, sometimes you flee, sometimes you freeze. Yeah. You, you don't necessarily, necessarily have a lot of control over it. And um, Well, it just doesn't it, feature on your potential list of things that would happen. Like, mm -hmm. you know how to, you, you kind of have an inbuilt program that if someone attacks me, 
I will then fight back. You, you kind of there's like a the automatic pilot kicks in. But if you haven't written a script for for what what to do in certain if then situations, then your brain just kind of shuts off, doesn't it? And even if you do have a script, that script's been written in a very calm state of mind or, you know, when you were feeling annoyed or aggressive and not when you were feeling afraid and, and on the back foot. And I suppose probably the crux of the issue, the reason why men who commit these crimes see it as even a possibility is because they presumably perceive women to be weaker or, or inferior and that it's just there for the taking. So I suppose it is a positive thing that... Um, just getting back to fitness, the the role of women in fitness at the moment is is moving more towards, um, you know, strength and, and powerlifting and using using fitness as something to improve your lifestyle, and then that that empowerment that in as a result probably, hopefully will reduce that the perceived disparity between men and women. Yeah, it's uh, I think that we're seeing a lot of changes in the messaging. Uh, towards women in fitness these days that it's it's less about who you need to be thin and, and it's more and more women are getting into strength training training for the sake of being strong and uh, and because they enjoy it because it's fun and it's not like you know they're you need to do the stair climber to nowhere for endless hours and uh, and I I mean, I think lifting weights is fun, and regardless of your gender, if you get a kick out of it, do it. Yeah, solid message. So, um, just to wrap things up, James, um, can you discuss a little bit about um, being an ex-fat kid and uh, and school bullying? Um, well, I wasn't fat as a kid. Uh, I didn't start to get overweight until I finished high school. But I, I did get bullied when I was in junior high school uh, just because I was not an athlete. I was never fit growing up. Like I was the, you know, when we grew up, the, the cool guys were the ones that were good in gym class. And I was useless in gym class. Like I was the last guy that got picked for teams all the time. So I, I never did any type of physical activity unless it was a sadistic gym teacher making me do it. And then by the age of about 18 or 19, you know, you start, you start drinking and eating fast food. I started to get overweight very quickly. Um, I had almost tipped the scales towards obesity, um, by the age of 25. And, uh, and then there was an inspirational moment where I had decided that, that I was going to get in shape and, uh, and it was, you know, for the for the first 25 years of my life, I did not like physical activity at all. And I, I found my passion for it. And that, in turn, changed my eating habits. And I ended up losing a whole bunch of weight and adding a whole bunch of muscle. Right, I see. So, so I guess this comes back to what you said at the start about the multidimensional effects of fitness on your life and that it's not just restricted to physical change. Yeah, it's it's really made a big difference in a, in a lot of ways because, um, you know, before before I got in shape, my I was kind of on cruise control. I didn't have a lot of passion for well much of anything really. I I, I didn't have my act together from a from a school perspective or career or anything. And then after I got in shape, 
it, it really made me feel like I could do anything I wanted that, it, that, you know, that was, it was tough. It was hard to go from completely inactive to really active and hard to learn how to control what I ate and hard to lose that weight. But once I did it, I really felt a major sense of accomplishment that I was able to take those type of life skills and transfer it over into career and end up having, you know, a very successful business career. I ended up getting two master's degrees and then having a successful business career and then launching a successful writing career, which let me tell you, is not easy. Yeah, it's, I think we both have been through similar experiences with our own um, physical transformations and it does definitely have uh, a cascade of effects that carry over, as you say, into other areas of your life, whether that be determination or self-belief. Cascade is a good word. Yeah, it's. I think what, what you were saying earlier as well about the the mindset changes, the, the, the disease risk benefits and all the stuff that is associated with just living this kind of lifestyle and not necessarily... That not necessarily being the the driving force behind it, but it being a side benefit, almost it, it accelerates the the process as well. Once you get into this stuff, and you end up completely changing your life just from one small uh, change at the beginning. Absolutely. Well, James, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. And I think we it's it's quite refreshing to speak to someone like yourself who has a very scientifically grounded and an inclusive approach with diet, uh, and to see you spreading that that message on such large platforms like you do with your writing. So thank you very much for coming on and speaking to us. How can our listeners and readers find out more about you? Bodyforwife.com is my blog that uh, my website and, and blog that I write fairly regularly on. And uh, I'm on Twitter at slash body for wife, but I hate Twitter and don't use it very much. Uh, the best place to find me is my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash body for wife because uh, i've got a big following there and we have a lot of fun great okay we'll include links to all of those in the uh the show notes to this podcast thanks very much for having me on the show no problem at all thank you for coming on that's everything for this episode and um, we'll speak to you next week